May we pray together, Lord, as we come before you this morning, we know that you're here among us and we want to praise you today as we go through the remembrance of the Lord's table. We want to celebrate what you did for us and to remember it. And we pray, Lord, this morning that we would come face to face with the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, that sin of the world includes our own sin. For those of us who are believers, come today and partake of these elements, remembering what you did for us and celebrating our salvation. And we pray this morning, Lord, that you would restore to us and renew to us and rejuvenate in us the joy of our salvation. May we leave here grateful for what you've done and eager to share with someone else what you can do for them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the great opportunity this morning to gather together as a church family around the Lord's table and to celebrate this wonderful uh, Lord's Supper where we take of the elements that uh, Jesus gave special meaning to there when he shared the Last Supper with his disciples. We remind ourselves of what it's all about using Paul's words to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Where Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup, and after supper, and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. As we go into this time of celebrating the Lord's table, anyone who is a professed follower of Jesus Christ and has been baptized is welcome to join with us. You don't have to be a member of this church to partake of the Lord's table. But when you take of it, you are identifying yourself as a born-again, baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to this table, we remember what Jesus did for us, that on that night before he died, as he took that common element of the bread that was at every table, and he looked at that unleavened bread, it reminded him of what was going to soon take place with his body. He saw the bruises from the fire, he saw the piercings, and he knew that his body would be broken for us. And so he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He broke that bread and he distributed it among his disciples as a reminder that all of them were going to be touched by his body that was going to be broken. And so this morning, as you take the bread, as our deacons distribute that, and as you hold it in your hand, remember that his body was broken for you, for your sins, for my sins, that he paid the price that otherwise we would have to pay. And so as you hold that bread and you wait for us to eat together and as we sing a song of, of celebration and remembrance, think about all that he did and thank him for it. May we pray together. Father God, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful for your body that was broken for us. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you that he made a way where there seemed to be no way. We thank you, Lord, that he who knew no sin 
became sin for us. We thank you that by his stripes we are healed. Lord, thank you for your love demonstrated in this wonderful sacrifice. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, he took the cup that was filled with wine and he looked at it and it reminded him of his blood that would be shed for his disciples. And as he looked at that, he couldn't help but think about how his blood was going to cover the sin of the world. So as you take this cup and as you peer down into it and you hold it and you think about the way that Jesus did pay it all, that there is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins, that sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Blood normally stains, but with Jesus' blood, it cleanses. So as you take this and peer through it and look at it and reflect, remember his blood shed for you. May we pray together. Lord, we thank you for this blood. We thank you for your blood. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us this reminder that as we look at it, we can remember what you did for us. Lord, thank you that you've made a way for us to be healed of sin and to be forgiven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Jesus said, this is the cup of my blood. It will be shed for you and for all so that sins may be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. As our deacons are welcome to return to their families, thank you for your service this morning, men. And we reflect upon what Jesus did for us and we remember that as they finished the Lord's Supper that evening, they left out and they sang a song of him as they went out onto the Mount of Olives where they would pray. Ultimately, Jesus would be arrested and then the whole events of the passion and then following the resurrection the following Sunday morning would take place. But what a wonderful reminder it is to be able to gather at his table to think about what he's done. And surely it is something that we want to celebrate. Today, we're focusing on the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's going to be the text of the message, and it's what we celebrate as we have this time of worship. And so let's thank Him for the cross this morning and thank Him for all that He's done. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you paid, bearing all my sin and shame. In love you came and gave amazing grace. Join us. Thank you 
for this love, Lord. Thank you for the nail-pierced Wash me in your cleansing flow. Now all I know, your forgiveness and embrace. Worthy, 
Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the many blessings that you bestowed on us. Thank you for this service and what it means to us, dear Lord, as your covenant was fulfilled with Jesus Christ. Help us as we go through this day. Remember this part of the service where we take up the tithes and offerings that you would bless them for the furtherance of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
This morning, we return to our series on the Gospel of John that we have entitled, Jesus, Who Are You? And our text is John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And so please turn there. It's a lengthy passage, uh, but you'll want to follow along and we'll be going in and out of it as we go through the message. We're going to continue our journey through John until Thanksgiving weekend. And on that weekend, uh, I'll share a, a Thanksgiving message and then we're going to shift into a Christmas series for the month of December. And we'll pick back up in John next year after some special emphasis in January. And the reason there'll be special emphasis in January is because we received news this week that our projected date to move back into the sanctuary is Sunday, January 7th. So we are excited about making that move. Uh, yeah, give, give the Lord a hand and the contractors a hand and all of that. Uh, we were hoping to be back in the sanctuary for Christmas, but uh, the time schedule was very short anyway for uh, construction. It was very tight. And then as we had a very unusually wet summer, that prevented the contractors from being able to get those additions out of the ground. But now that we've had great weather, those are moving along well. And so January 7th is looking forward to be our first Sunday in the uh, sanctuary. And so December 31st will be the last Sunday in here. And be looking over the coming weeks as uh, we'll probably have some schedule changes changes as we move into uh, those last few Sundays in uh, this, the gym. Uh, the, be in prayer for the contractors, uh, for their safety. There's a lot of high work happening, high painting and things over there uh, for all the various elements to come together and be completed on time so that we can get there back in there in January. Y'all ready? For that? Yeah, yeah, we are too. <laughs> we are too. Uh, looking forward to that. This has been fun, but it hadn't been real fun. Uh, and, it's, <laughs> and it's time to be able to get back into the sanctuary, be back in one service. And uh, until we outgrow the sanctuary, then we'll look at two services. But looking forward to uh, great times together back in the sanctuary. Um, with that move, um, you know, we haven't had an organist in a while. We really would like to have an organist uh, when we get back in the sanctuary. So if you hear of somebody who can play a pipe organ, now that's a different animal than just normal organ playing. But if you hear of somebody, please let us know because we are looking to fill that position as we get back into the sanctuary. As we enter uh, John chapter 1 verses 19 and following, uh, we begin the narrative of John's gospel. And John thrusts us into the story of Christ with some careful details. And we immediately find that John's gospel is different. Now, the prologue should have tipped us off to that, but if nothing else, we get into his storyline and it's a little bit different because each of the synoptic gospels tells us about the baptism of Jesus and his temptation, but John skips over that and begins his narrative about six weeks later, after the baptism, after the temptation, in what seems to be the first week of Jesus' ministry. In fact, over the course of the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2, he lets us know on this day and then on the next day and then the next day. And we journey through that first week. And today, we're going to encounter the first two days of that ministry. Jesus doesn't appear in the story until the second day. And so let's pick up with day 1 in John chapter 1, verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. 
Well, are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. It had been 400 years since a prophet had appeared in Israel. The famine of the word of God which Amos had predicted had been fulfilled with a vengeance. And due to a such long famine of the word of God, the political and religious circumstances that also happened within those four centuries, Israel longed for her Messiah. Consequently, there was an anxious kind of hope in the hearts of the people. And so when John the baptizer came on the scene, the Jews detected a note of God's voice in John. And they flocked from everywhere to hear him. You'll remember that we were first introduced to John in verses 6 and 8 in the prologue where John the gospel writer says, there came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Chuck Swindoll says, John was no angel, no spark of divinity, just a man. There was nothing significant about his name, unlike the name Emmanuel and Jesus that were full of meaning. He was just John in a plain brown wrapper, but he was not ordinary. He was sent from God, commissioned by the Almighty. He stood virtually alone and fit into no preformed mold. He was neither Pharisee nor Sadducee nor priest nor Levite nor scribe. He didn't sound like a priest and he didn't smell like a saint. <laughs> Therefore, the religious leaders were intrigued by his growing popularity. And, and so they sent two groups to question him on this particular day. Now that day it started out as any other for John the baptizer. He was carrying out his ministry along the banks of the Jordan there near Bethany. But then a group of priests and Levites came to ask him who he was. Now the first question uh, that they asked and the rest of the questions they offer seemed to make it think that they didn't know who John was. But certainly they did know who he was. I mean, John's own dad, Zechariah, had been a priest. Therefore, John was a member of the priestly tribe, the Levites. And so these priests and Levites, who all were Levites, were his relatives. And because of John's lineage, John actually should have been a priest serving alongside them. In Judaism, uh, the only qualification for being a priest was descent. And so all descents of Aaron among the tribe of Levi were priests. Therefore, if a man was not a descendant of Aaron, nothing could make him a priest. And if he was a descendant of Aaron, nothing could stop him from being a priest. But John 
was not serving as a priest. And so the religious guys knew who he was. What they didn't know was what he was. What role did he have? And you'll notice their questions are about role. He was not fulfilling his priestly image. So what was he doing dressed so oddly in camel hair and performing this ministry of baptism? You see, the Jews had baptism, but it was for those converting to Judaism, not for Jews themselves. And so the Levites and the priests come questioning and, and asking John some questions. And their first question, which is not stated, must have been, are you the Messiah, the Christ? Well, John categorically denies that. In fact, the emphasis in the original language is something like, who, me? No, I am not the Messiah. It is strong. It is emphatic. I am not the Messiah. The second question takes one step away from Messiah. Okay, so then are you Elijah? You see, it was Jewish belief that before Messiah came, Elijah the prophet would return to herald in his coming and to prepare the world to receive him. That word came back from the prophet Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, in the next to last verse of the Old Testament, which we looked at this summer in the series on Malachi. Malachi 4, 5 says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now, John denied being Elijah. John knew he was not some resurrected or reincarnated or mysteriously appearing form of the literal prophet Elijah. However, John certainly knew that he was born to be one with the spirit of Elijah. In fact, the angel of the Lord that appeared to John's dad, Zechariah, had told Zechariah, this child will go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's Luke 1, 17. And the other gospel writers, and uh, the gospel writers identify John as this Elijah. But they asked, are you Elijah, meaning literally this prophet? And so John replies, I'm not Elijah. So they asked a third question. Then, if you're not the Messiah, if you're not Elijah, then are you the prophet? Notice that, the prophet prophet. There was no need for John to ask, now, which prophet do you refer to? Because they said, the prophet. John knew exactly what prophet they were talking about. Because Moses, in his farewell speech to his people, said God would raise up in their midst a prophet like Moses, who, would, who he would speak through. That's in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. And so these religious leaders ask, are you the prophet? And John says, no. So finally, they ask him a fourth question. Then who in the world are you? <laughs> what do you say about yourself? We've got to report back something to the people who've sent us. And so John's answer is then a quotation of Isaiah 40, verse 3. And he says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness or in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. John uses the words of Isaiah to declare himself as the forerunner of Christ. 
But that statement is so intriguing because John is not the Messiah, he's not Elijah, he's not the prophet, but he is an important figure as this forerunner of Christ. But still, notice the humility in the midst of his importance. He doesn't even refer to himself as a man. He's just a voice. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. What John was saying was, I am a nobody. I am only a voice telling you to get ready for the coming of the king, for he is on his way. You see, John was not the substance of the message. He was the communicator of the one who was bringing the message. So John points beyond himself to someone else who is coming. John was crying out, in a spiritually desolate land that had been famished by a, a, a famine of the word of God. He was speaking in a desert, in a wilderness. The spiritual land had lain fallow. It was dry. It was parched. And John's job was to prepare a way for the arrival of Jesus. And we spoke about this idea of making a way of the Lord when we journeyed through Malachi this summer. Remember... That the eastern roads were not surfaced. They weren't really even that smooth or paved. They, they were simply more like tracks or trails people would follow. And so when a king was about to visit a province, he would send uh, people ahead of him. Or when a conqueror was about to go through the area in his domain, he would send a group through that would smooth out the road, widen the path, straighten it out, put it in order So that the king or the conqueror and his entourage could come through. So the low places were filled in. The rough places were made smooth. So they could come in with their entourage. Now with, as I was thinking about this, I I couldn't help but think about the opening of hunting season that happened. And I'm kind of surprised we have this good a crowd in the first service, the hunting season opening. But... Dad and I seldom missed uh, opening day of squirrel season. That was kind of the big hunting that we did. But since I don't eat them, I don't hunt them anymore. But uh, growing up, we, we hunted squirrels. And it was, it was a big part of, of life. And a week or two before season opened, Dad and I would take a Saturday. And we'd go out to our property in Forest Hill where we would hunt. And we'd have to cut out our hunting trail through some thick woods and swamp to get back to where we were going to be hunting. And some of the trail would, have, would remain clear from year to year and some of it would, would have to be uh, grow up and so it'd have to be cut back. And we had to make a way in the wilderness so that we could move through with ease and we could safely get to where we were going to reap a harvest. And it was very important, especially as I got a little older, when dad would head off in a different direction and send me down the trail. It had to be cut clearly so I wouldn't get lost in the thicket. It had to be cut clearly so I could be safe going through the swamp. Because I remember one Saturday as we were clearing that land, we killed about five water moccasins going through there. And I was very glad to be able to see my feet in a couple of Saturdays when I was hunting. We had to make a way in the wilderness so that we could move through with ease and safely to reap a harvest of squirrels. Now, John the Baptist's job was to clear a path for the Messiah, to make a way for him to be able to move freely through the wilderness of human hearts that he could reap a harvest of souls. John preached a message of repentance. Jesus came in and preached a message of salvation, of how you can move forward. I wonder this morning, what is your heart like 
Is your heart ready for the Lord? Is it soft and fertile or is it parched and barren? Is it smooth and clear or is it full of potholes? Is it wide open to the work of the Lord or is it covered with briars and vines? You know, if God seems distant in your life, it may be that you need to do a little road work of repentance so he can work in. For when you do, you come to a place where you have an open highway in your life for Jesus to do a major work in your life and it is a major and it is an amazing work as he begins to do that. Apparently, with John's answer from Isaiah, the first group of questioners composed of the Levites and priests, they, they backed away, but a new group stepped in, the Pharisees. Now, these men obviously weren't so interested in what Jesus was or who Jesus was. They were interested more in what he was teaching and what he was doing. They were the teachers and keepers of the law, so the law is what they really cared about, and so they wanted to make sure Jesus wasn't a false prophet. People were flocking to, or John wasn't a false prophet. People were flocking to John, and so what was he teaching? And so they asked, why then do you baptize if you're not Christ, Elijah, or the prophet? Why are you doing and teaching this if you aren't any of those? And so John simply once again points beyond himself in verse 26 and says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He's the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now that statement would have garnered their attention, the thongs of whose sandals I am not fit to untie. The rabbis taught, you see, that untying sandals was the work of a slave and only a slave. There was a rabbinical saying that said, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal thong. So see again John's humility. John's saying he's lower than a slave when it comes to the one who's following him. A servant has higher status because a servant can untie sandals. Now, we don't know how this question session ended. I suppose the men walked away murmuring to themselves because John didn't give any clearer answers than Jesus would in his ministry. And so we have the end of day one and now day two, picking up at verse 29. The next day, see how he just takes us along. John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. Seeing Jesus coming that day, the second day, John probably pointed to him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and in that one sentence, we have the essence of the Christian message. 
Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's what we have celebrated today. It's what we take into our lives. It's what transforms our life and it's what we share with others that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we're very familiar with that phrase. In fact, so familiar that nobody even amen just then or got excited. It's just kind of like, yeah, he's the Lamb of God. Whoop-de-doo. That's because we're, we've been kind of famished with the familiar. You know, I was saved 30 years ago. Whoop-de-doo. Take the bread, take the cup. But we must remember that statement was brand new in this day. And this time when John spoke it. You see, when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John's words struck the ears of the Jews surrounding him that day. And those words would have been an avalanche of meaning to the Jews' mind. Because for centuries, their consciousness had been programmed with the idea of a sacrificial Lamb. With John's statement, their minds went all the way back to Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, where Isaac said, Dad, behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replied, God will provide the lamb, my son. John's hearers undoubtedly also thought of the Passover lamb. The application of the blood over the door marking a home as one that the death angel would pass over. I'm sure John, before anyone else understood Isaiah 53 and the idea of the suffering servant Isaiah did, where we read, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. John was the son of a priest. He would know all the ritual of the temple, all the ritual of the sacrifices. Every morning and every evening, a lamb was sacrificed in the temple for the sins of the people. It may be that John is saying, in the temple, a lamb is offered every night and every morning for the sins of the people. But in Jesus is the only sacrifice which can deliver men from sin forever. Behold, he says, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every Jew hearing John would relate to the ministry of sacrifice. But they must have wondered, a man is the lamb? A man could die and his blood could be shed for me? His blood could cover over me? Yeah. Notice what he says next. John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Notice, sin, not just sins. Jesus' saving work is related to the basic cause of man's separation from God. His sinful nature which expresses itself in our sins. Jesus, like Roundup, goes to the root of the problem. Jesus, like a good doctor, doesn't stop at just treating the symptoms. 
He doesn't just give you a salve or a pill. He says, what's really going on here? Let's get to the root of it and get it out. He doesn't just come to take away sins. He came to take away the root of sin. And who would he do it for? What does it say there, church? The sins of the world. Not just the Jews, but the entire world. And we should be glad of that. What a powerful statement. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's, it's a life-changing, even an eternity-changing statement. John identifies Jesus with everything he had said before. This is the one I meant when I said someone great is coming. Hey, that's him right there. And then John gives the testimony of what happened at the baptism a few weeks earlier where he says, I saw the Spirit descending. And I didn't really know who he, who he was then, but I discovered when this was given. You see, now, John, too, knew who Jesus was. They were relatives of some sort. Their moms were very close. But what John meant was just what those laws and priests, they knew who Jesus, he knew who Jesus was. He didn't know what Jesus was. But when that spirit descended and that voice spoke from heaven, he went, oh, yes. Now I see who this is. As Swindoll says, again, the voice made ready the way of the word, the comforter, the, con the confronter of sins, heralded the one who takes all sin away. The man sent from God bowed to the one who came as God in the flesh. The water baptizer pointed to the spirit baptizer. And finally, this priest's son testified that Jesus was indeed the very son of God. Yes, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, most of you know I, I grew up a Baptist, but I attended Catholic school from first to eighth grade at St. Francis Cabrini School in Alexandria. And from time to time throughout the year, we would have these special services, these special masses where, I don't know if it was some special kind of holy day or whatever, but um, it'd be a bigger mass and some of the church members would come, usually senior adults who were free during the school day. But in the service of the mass, we would get to that point where uh, the congregation states the Agnus Dei, which is the Lamb of God, which is basically this statement. It says, Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Grant us peace. And I noticed that some of those senior adults did things that we weren't taught as the students at the Mass. And that was when we quoted the Agnus Dei, they would often do this. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Have mercy on us. Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Grant us peace. And even as an elementary school kid, I figured out pretty quickly what they were doing. It was a form of showing remorse and repentance. Now, they may have just been going through the motions, but it said something. That when we come before the Lamb of God... We focus on what he's done. He's taken my sin. And I repent. Have mercy on me, a sinner. This morning we've gathered around the table of the Lamb of God. And we've remembered his body broken for us. And 
his blood shed for us. We've remembered his sacrifice. We've recalled that there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and that sinners plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stain. And we've said that Jesus paid it all so that we owe him everything. And we have declared that this lamb is worthy, just as we will for all eternity. So John has said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we have today as a church body. But the question before you this morning is, have you? Have you personally beheld the lamb? Is he your lamb? Have you beheld him as the one who takes away your sin? Have you been broken by his brokenness, his blood shed for you? Have you been humbled by his love for you, a sinner? Have you beat your breast in humble surrender? Have you beheld his glory as the resurrected lamb of God? For when you do, then your declaration will be worthy is the lamb. But it all starts with repentance. With the humble spirit of John, I'm nothing. He is everything. I'm a sinner. He is the Savior. Friend, this morning, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away your sin and my sin. If there's never been a point in your life where you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I pray that today would be that day when you truly come face to face with the one who is the Lamb of God who's made a way for you, who wants to redeem you of your sins, who wants you to have a relationship with him. He wants you to be saved. And in a few moments, after I pray, we're going to stand and sing a song of invitation. We're going to invite you to come. And for you to be able to come and say, Pastor, I come this morning trusting Jesus as my Savior. I want to be saved today. There may be others of you who are believers. But today, in a fresh new way, you've come face to face with the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world. And, and you want to be closer to Him going forward. And so you would say, I'm giving my life to Christ afresh and anew. I've had some briars in the way. I've had some things in the way I need to cut out. And, and I'm doing that this morning so that there's a highway through which the Lord can do a new work in my life. I want to experience a renewal, a revival today in my life. So I'd encourage you to ask the Lord to do that this morning. Beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you now asking you to move in this moment for us to see you do a new work and for us to see you bring people to faith and for others who are, are seeing renewal in their lives. We give you this time coming as we are to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we